All right, we are coming to the end of our study in 1 Timothy. We're going to finish chapter 5 today, and then we'll spend two weeks on chapter 6. We'll then do a standalone sermon, and then we will be in 2 Timothy. So we are in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Take it and keep it. Uh, We are uh, looking at, we're coming to the end of the letter, and we're going to see throughout this, this portion of Scripture, it almost becomes... Uh, Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, wrapping up, and he almost starts like rapid firing like points. It's almost like bullet points where it's like a couplet of sentences or just one sentence standalone, just comments on, on, uh, to Timothy and encouraging him in his, his ministry. And so as I studied today, I was more reminded of, of our church's story, my personal story. And so you'll get to see some of that sprinkled throughout today's text as I have, if I have personal anecdotes or personal uh, uh, applications see, to, so that you can see kind of behind the curtains uh, in some ways, uh, behind the scenes, get to know me a little better, but also get to know uh, the, some personal applications of the stuff that Paul's talking to Timothy about. Sometimes when we're studying, it may seem, uh, when you're reading, you may seem like, man, I don't, this feels ancient or this feels disconnected from my day in life today. It's not, it, I promise you. So here's where we're at. First Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17. First thing we're looking at is pastoral honor and wages, something that most uh, preachers don't want to talk about, especially when it's talking about them. And, but Paul is writing to Timothy to tell him to talk about it. This is God's word. We stand on it. It has the authority. So here's what it says. It says, let the elders or pastors. Here at the well, the word elder and pastor are synonymous. That's also how it is in the New Testament. The word elder, pastor, uh, overseer, uh, these are used synonymously, meaning they're the, they're the same. So when we call someone pastor, they're also an elder. An elder is a pastor, uh, but, uh, but since the Mormons co-opted the term elder and uh, we don't walk around saying, hi, my name is... Elder Al. I'm Pastor Al. So if you were offended by that, welcome to the well. You may get some more of that along the way. Uh, he says this, uh, the, let the elders or the pastors who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor or work in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox uh, while it treads out the grain, for the, le- for the laborer deserves his wages. So context here. Who's preaching in Ephesus? Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy, the main preacher in Ephesus. We know this because Paul has told him in in chapter 4 to, until I come to you. He says in chapter 4, I think verse 14, until I come to you, keep preaching God's word. In season and out of season, keep it going. That's your job, your task, Timothy, to preach until I get to you. The Apostle also knows uh, that that pastoral work is hard. So he's talking about honor, and he is going to talk about wages. And so, but he, he does this in the context of what pastoral work is. If you've, uh, Paul, throughout his letters, uh, Timothy would have been familiar with Paul's writings. He would have been familiar with the other things that Paul has said. Uh, the Apostle Paul, the author of this book, is writing to Timothy, who's uh, a young pastor, but Paul is like his father in the faith. Paul is his spiritual father, also mentor, and also overseer uh, as he's laboring to do this work, particular work, as being the preaching pastor in Ephesus. And so Paul's 
well aware of the type of, of work that, that Timothy has to do. He oftentimes refers to pastoral ministry uh, as like a, a, like a hardworking farmer, like physical, manual, blue-collar labor, like a, like a farmer would, would, would labor, or like a wrestler or athletic, something that is hand-to-hand combat exhausting. The point is, uh, uh, is, is that it's exhausting. Whether you're wrestling someone or whether you are working on the, on the farm or in the field uh, or you know, laying combat, concrete or whatever you're doing, it is exhausting, especially in a day in Paul's time where they didn't have the modern tools and technology we had. Um, and so what, what, what Timothy is, is doing is uh, to not to just study God's word and then preach God's word, but he, is to, he has other jobs throughout the week. To, he's caring, he's counseling, uh, it, it, depending on the church, the church size and dynamics, he may be overseeing a group of leaders or, uh, uh, or having a staff. Um, these are the types of things that often don't get seen. So Paul sees these things. He knows these things. But additionally, we, uh, uh, we are told now, there are studies that have been done that have said preaching a sermon, a 30-minute sermon. If you're a guest, we do two of those in one here. Uh, uh, if you don't know what that means, that's, you'll see it in a minute. Preaching a 30-minute sermon, uh, people now say through studying, is like uh, eight hours of physical labor. And so you're like, someone, you know, is preaching. I mean, that seems exhausting. Well, it is. But also, uh, here's the reality. Preaching, uh, you can get in shape for preaching. When I took four weeks off, I came back, right, uh, from vacation, came back. I preached. I was, I like fell asleep. I was trying to drive home. And I was so exhausted. I was like, I am beat. That was hard. That's the first time I actually felt like it was like, man, that was like an eight-hour work day. So there is a reality that the preacher, it's his job with the elders and the deacons and the staff to, to, to organize his life in such a way that he's able to do the job. And this is what Paul's been telling Timothy about the job that he is doing. And so uh, my background is in um, um, endurance sports. And so there was a time in my life where in college we were uh, running upwards of 90 to 100 miles a week. Yes, running, not driving, running. And you might be, and someone, some people thought and said, man, that sounds awful and hard. Yeah, it is if you're not in shape. It was if you weren't in shape. It wasn't for us because we were in shape for that. There is a conditioning level, just like a farmer who works a hard job isn't waking up every day and going, oh, man, this eight-hour labor workday is just so crazy hard. He gets in shape. Same with athletics, same with anything that you discipline yourself to, to be a part of. Eventually, there's a type of in shape and preparedness you have. And so, but, but nonetheless, Paul is saying that pastoral work, preaching particularly, is hard. Not in just heralding it, because what, what I'm doing now is not just telling you things, teaching you things, but we're, we're fighting a spiritual battle, a real battle going on. If you're not a Christian here and, you're, and you don't know, love, and trust Jesus, part of the battle is, is helping you see that Jesus is the most prized and precious gift and we are to worship him and, and that is what we are to give our lives to. And if you are a Christian, we're reminding you of that too. And so preaching is heralding, it's telling uh, what God's word says. It's like a prophet standing before the people of God saying, this is what the word of the Lord says. It's our job to submit to it. And so it could be exhausting, we're told, uh, by the Apostle Paul. Additionally, Paul, his ministry that wasn't preaching was exhausting too. So Paul's telling Timothy, I understand. 
I understand. Like some days, this is quoting the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. it's not going to be on the screens, but I'm going I'm to read some of the things Paul has said about ministry. He says that, that his, his, he's been shipwrecked. He says he's been abandoned. He says he's been beaten. He, said he's, he says he's been exhausted. He said, apart from all those things, there's even daily pressure for me and my anxiety for all the churches. There's a weight of responsibility and care he has. Additionally, he says in 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, he says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Because that's what ministry should feel like. You're like, this is why I don't want people want to sign up for it. I just want to be a, I want to be a pastor. All right, are you ready for the job of being so utterly burdened beyond strength that you despair of life itself? He says, indeed, he says, that's how it's supposed to be. He continues and says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The ministry that Paul has commissioned Timothy on, the ministry within the church, the pastor's job is not a physical job. It is a, it's a spiritual job. It, it, is to be, it is to feel like, it's to feel so exhausting is to feel a certain way that you don't depend on yourself, but on the strength of God who raises the dead. That's what it, that is the job. It is, it, it is so anyone who com- comes into ministry who just thinks that, man, they're just going to jump on in and it's going to be a lot of fun and you get to talk about some things you like and maybe have coffee with, with the people you like and, you know, get to sh- give some hugs, share Jesus and just, you know, be excited. God does not, has not designed pastoral ministry to be that way. And this is why Paul is talking to Timothy about, hey, hey, there's a type of honor that the church should give its pastor. The type of labor is exhausting. It's hard. It's hard not so that we can flaunt it in arrogance and pride. So I don't say any of this to go, look how hard it is. You ever met that guy who works long hours? And he's just like, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. He wants you to know how hard his life is. And there's a, a fool and arrogant and proud. He thinks it's about him. Paul is saying this, and I'm saying this not to say how hard, look how hard it is. Look how, look at, look how hard it is. Give us sympathy. No, not at all. I'm trying to say that is how God designed it. So that you shouldn't want it any differently. So that the, your pastors, the people who, who, who lead you, depend not on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's the work. And that's what God has called us to. And so what Paul is saying here isn't his opinion. He's talking about his experience, his experiences, yes, but his call. But he cites it according to Deuteronomy 25.4. He goes to the Old Testament and says, The scriptures have said... You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. He's like, if we should treat pastors better than we treat our animals. In Deuteronomy 25.4, it requires that the owner of an ox would allow the, the ox to eat while it, it grinds the grain. And so he, he, he follows it up with the statement of uh, the labor deserves his wages. And so what he's talking about, the wages he's talking about is first honor, which is, isn't necessarily monetarily. Monetary. He is also referring to remuneration, so like a, a payment. But his issue here is honor. It's honor. Just like we, last week we talked about him honoring widows and, how, and the church setting up systems and programs and how to hit care and honor widows. 
He's talking about honor here. He's talking about honor. And then he's talking about payment. Not every church will be able to do. He says, let, let the elders or pastors who, who, who rule well be, con, be considered worthy of double honor. So first it starts with a posture, a heart, an honor. I can say this. Myself and my family feel incredibly loved by this church and honored. Y'all do this very, very well. Like I, that's why I love, I wasn't afraid to preach this. I'm like, man, this, they do it. So don't feel shame here. But it start, what he's saying is that honor starts in the heart. Over and over, I could go countless stories of how my wife and I have felt incredible honor from you all. Additionally, from the elders and the, the deacons and who, who free me so I can focus on this particular ministry. This is the first year uh, that, that I've actually not had to work any sort of side job. First year. So I feel honored. This is, it doesn't have to be this way, but this is where you work towards. And, and, and we've done a great job as a church. And I praise God for you. And I thank you. Y'all honor me. Y'all honor the pastors. Y'all honor the staff. Y'all honor Jesus ultimately very well. And so that's what made me excited about this, this passage, just seeing that, that this has been lived out in the context of our church. And so I say this to explain the text, not to say, look how hard our job is. I'm saying our job should be the type of job to where we have to rely not on our own strength, but on the strength that God supplies. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead should indwell in us and empower the work we do. Or else we're just operating in the flesh. Or else you should just go to some self-help conference, go download a podcast, read a book. That's not what we're doing. So thank you for honoring me well. Uh, next, he now talks about accusations against pastors. He's talking about honor and wages for, for pastors, but then he's talking about what happens when a pastor sins or there's accusations. First, he talks about accusations. First, verse 19, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder, again, a pastor, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why is he saying this? Why is he saying this? Because people say false things about pastors all the time. It's Paul, even in Paul's day, he's, he's anticipating that accusations would come against the elders. He's anticipating. That's what he says. There, there are certain charges that come through that you just don't need to admit. I'm not saying admit in the sense of uh, uh, it, it, uh, declaring if it was right or true or not, but, but there's some things that people say. The guy on Twitter saying whatever he wants to say or the guy who drops into the, the uh, comment section on, on Google reviews and just comments with like a, a weird emoji face and you don't know who he really is and like though just we're not gonna have an elder meeting to discuss what uh three four two four nine eight three two one said about us on the comment section like that's not how we're gonna uh, don't do that he's not he will talk about what happens if a pastor per, uh, persistence in here in a moment but right now why is he talking about accusations he's talking about accusations being accused pastors being accused of things He's saying this, that there should be, the elders are designed to investigate accusations. So which accusations do you go after? Well, that guy said Jesus was the only way. That's hate speech. So we believe that that pastor said hate speech. Are we going to, well, uh, what was the hate speech? He said Jesus was the only way. Well, we, we all agree. Well, we as elders agree with that. So we're not going to take that into consideration. We don't need a meeting about that. We don't need to gather church discipline for that one. 
He says, when he's referring to two or three witnesses, what he is saying is that that don't receive charges unless there's adequate documentation or multiple people involved or multiple accounts of the same uh, thing going on. Because pastors do sin. Pastors do disqualify themselves. Pastors do, should be held uh, accountable. What we are talking about is not uh, a lack of accountability. But we're, what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is how to discern how to keep a pastor accountable. And he's warning Timothy that there's sometimes there are people who say things that may or may not be true. And here's the reality. Oftentimes, it's the pastor will never come out publicly and tell you. You have a meeting with someone and there's more witnesses. Oftentimes, that's what we do with, with certain uh, cases where we have multiple witnesses there so that if, if, if it's never he said, she said, or he said, he said, or, or whatever, so that if there is any uh, uh, accusations that come up, then, then someone is like, all right, that's not what happened. But it's not the job of the elders in the room or the staff in the room or the deacons, whoever was involved, to, to come out and say, just because the Twitter sphere started shouting out accusations that we got to go give a public defense because the crazies have taken it to the internet. We live in a day where this is more likely than not. And so there's a reality that Paul will continue to tell Timothy, don't get caught up in civilian affairs. Don't get caught into reading the comment section. Don't get caught up in the, 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 the anger and, and frustration that fuels the algorithm. Don't get caught up in, 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 in that, Timothy. And so the elders should, should govern in such a way that if there's an accusation, that there's some sort of uh, adequate documentation. It's some sort of other, some multiple people have seen this. We've seen a history, a pattern, something like this. I should say this. Obviously, if there's some sort of criminal case this doesn't go to the elders. The elders should go directly to the, 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 the authorities. So there's someone's accused of murder. This isn't like, oh, well, you have a murder weapon, but you don't have any uh, witnesses. No, this is, that's above the elder's pay grade. When it's a level of an issue of the state, the state needs to handle it. So that's the same thing. If someone is, if an elder is, is hears that uh, uh, there's abuse in a home, a husband is beating his wife, and there's, she has markings, we don't step in and go, we are the authorities. No, you call the police. If you're at your home and you feel like uh, there's an emergency, don't call me. Don't call the elders. Call the emergency number. It's called 911. Do that. that so th- that is obvious here. That is obvious here. But Paul is urging Timothy to understand that the elders, when they organize themselves, that they they are to investigate issues. They are to investigate issues. And there's to do so uh, with with adequate documentation. And and therefore, it leads to verse 20, if a pastor persists in sin. So they hear accusations over and over about this pastor uh, doing these things or sinning in these ways. The elders should take that seriously. And it says, so, so... if some of you feel like the, that, that verse 19 was an excuse to push away accountability, please hear verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This isn't a lack of accountability. It's how to discern how to keep, one, keep a pastor accountable. 
There are some things that are going to be said that, that, are, that you shouldn't admit the charge because it's someone just that, that has no evidence or no, no it, it's just an opinion. Then there's some, if maybe an opinion turns into, they keep saying the same opinion. This guy is, is this way, and it's just everyone agrees. Everyone's just saying the same accusations over and over. The elders will step in, and then they will confront the other elder. And so it will be done privately first, and if he persists in sin, there will be a rebuke. Whether it's first among the elders, maybe then it's among the, the members, Sometimes persistent sin would result in removal, public removal. It's likely that the presence of all is, is not referring to uh, the internet, uh, but likely referring to the members and the elders. Internet didn't exist this day. He's not saying, you know, run your PR campaign. He's saying in the presence of all, rebuke them with the members around uh, and the elders or just the elders privately and, and there's, there's, depending on the issue. But you're rebuking them and, and, and publicly, publicly meaning among the congregation. That wouldn't be a thing where you show up on Sunday like right now and we bring elder in and just rebuke and blast them. That'd be kind of cool, though, uh, to see. I don't want to do that. don't think it should happen, but I just, <laughs> it doesn't tell us how to do it. We just wouldn't do it that way. We just would do it in, at a members meeting because here, it's not just members here. It's, it's guests, visitors, and so this isn't a family meeting, but this, if it's a family issue, you, ha- you handle it at a, at a family meeting. He says if they persist, which means that they're unrepentant. We're told in Matthew 18, if someone sins against you, you're to go to them. So there's a one-on-one confrontation. If that doesn't work, then you get multiple people involved. And this is for everyone in the room. This is how Christians deal with conflict. And if, if, the, if the one-on-one didn't work and the group didn't work, uh, then, then you bring the elders in. Well, if the issue's with the elders, you go, you go one-on-one, multiple, bring the elders in, the rest of the elders, and then you, you bring them to the church. This, this may be for a public rebuke, like Paul says, or public removal. Those, that, that can happen. And so the elders are to be the type of Christian men worth imitating. We've talked about that at length when we went through the elders a few weeks, a few months ago. And they're to therefore fight sin internally, their own sin, constantly being repentant. It's what everyone should be doing. All of us, if you know, love, and trust Jesus, we are to be constantly repenting. This is what Martin Luther, the first thing he said uh, in leading the Reformation, is the Christian life is one of continual repentance. The elders ought to model that. Therefore, if they're caught in sin or, or there's some sort of sin that persists, then they're, they're talked about, they're, they're, they're confronted on the sin issue uh, as a manner of restoration. They should be willing to repent. If they don't repent of sin, then they're to be rebuked in the presence of all, Paul says. He is talking very, he takes accountability very seriously. And so when you look at the qualifications of an elder, those are the things that an elder is being tested why? Is he disqualified according to the, the, the qualifica- qualifications that Paul has already told Timothy an elder must be? So when he says, so that the rest of the congregation may stand in fear, he's talking about the rest of the congregation, but also the rest of the elders. He's, he, he is saying what he is saying, that they may stand in fear, meaning that they may take warning. Additionally, they should fear sin. They're not, they're not fearing the other elders, but they are fearing their sin and the consequences of their sin. 
Now, many might object, especially in our day, to, to the motivation of fear. To, to mo- why is Paul motivating by fear? Well, we need to understand this, that he often says that there are appropriate times that one ought to be motivated by fear. I'm going to list a few. We're not going to put them on the screens, but you want to listen up or, or take notes or uh, ask me after service or uh, if you want to listen back on this audio or video. Romans 11:20. He, he speaks of having fear as well, being a motivator to salvation. He says that if, Jesus, if, if God did not spare his own son, why in the world would he spare you? That's a fear motivator. He's saying that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins. That he was executed, brutally beaten, and murdered for sinners so that they could be saved. And there's only one salvation, and it comes through faith in Jesus alone. And if you don't repent of your sin and trust Jesus, the wrath that was poured out on Jesus will be poured out on you. The only covering for your sin is Jesus. It's like walk, if, like we got rain today. Praise God. We've been praying for it. We got a little bit of it. You walked outside without an umbrella. You got wet. But if you put over the covering of an umbrella in the rain, it can spare you from the, the, the rain. Correct? In the same way, if you're not walking under the covering of Christ's atoning sacrifice in your place for your sins, you will walk into eternity experiencing the full wrath of God for eternity. And that's the motive. And, that's, and some of you, that scares you. And it should. It's terrifying. It should be terrifying that you look God, the God of the universe, the, the one true and living God, in the face and said, I don't care about your son and your sacrifice. Even though you did this so that I could be saved and I could be forgiven, I don't care. You should stand in fear. Any man throughout the Old Testament that spoke to God in such a way, God would say things like, gird your loins like a man and get ready. We're going to throw down. Fear. Romans 13, 3. Romans 13, 4. uh, Verse 4. Romans 13, 7. He additionally talks about fear being the motivator. And he's referring to the law of the land, the state. If you murder, there's, there's consequences. You should fear the state. Fear motivates you to not break the law. That is good. Additionally, 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 11, uh, 5, or 7, 1, uh, 7, 11, 7, 15. He also refers to the fear of the Lord as a motivator in, in that referring to God's holiness. God is so holy, so other, so perfect that in his presence that the angels cover their eyes, cover their bodies because the radiance of his glory is, is so awesome that it's terrifying. Ephesians 5, 21 uh, verse 21, verse 23 talks about fear being a posture of reverence. If you don't have a fear in reverence for God, see, if you're in Christ, you don't need to fear his wrath. You, you, you've been set free. But you should stand in fear in awe of him that he is awesome, mighty, powerful, other, set apart, holy. Reverence. Philippians 2.12, the Apostle Paul talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
Colossians 3.22, he refers to fear being a motive for obedience. Additionally, fear was a part, a motive of Paul's own experience. He says to the Corinthians uh, in in chapter 2, verse 3, he he says he he approached them with much fear and trembling. The work that he he was doing, uh, the the ministry that he had, he wasn't doing it flippantly. It it came with a level of of awe, of reverence, of fear and trembling. It, It literally is like shaking. The great uh, Protestant reformer John Knox, when he stood up and preached the first time, he was so terrified because he, was, he realized he was heralding God's word that he broke down crying. He later stood toe-to-toe against Mary, Queen of Scots, also known as Bloody Mary, and, and stood against her, pointing to Jesus Christ, the only Savior. It got wild. He, at one point, he was a galley slave. He moved from his fear and trembling of man to his fear and trembling of God, just like the Apostle Paul says his, his ministry is marked by in 1 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul also talks about there's oftentimes in his life, like he was literally afraid of his life. We live in a day where we don't like to, to, that anyone would ever use fear as a tactic to motivate someone to do something. That's awful. That's awful. Why would, why would you ever motivate someone to do that? I don't know. You tell me. Two weeks to flatten the curve. Grandma's going to die if you don't get a shot. Wear a mask. That's all we do is motivate by fear. That's all we do. The right and the left. Everything's fear. If you don't do this now, fear. Fear. Fear is an awesome motivator. It cannot sustain anybody. Only faith can. Paul is not saying everything should be ruled by fear. That you run around like the United States of America and in just telling everyone to be afraid of everything. So that you can get them to do what you, that you want them to do. Every level we need to just use fear and scare tactics. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when it comes to sin particularly the sin of an elder who won't repent, he should be rebuked publicly so that there's a level of of awe and fear and reverence for God and his holiness in the Christian life. That's what he's talking about, fear of God and fear of sin, so that it pushes us to the only one who can save, and that's Jesus. Fear can motivate, but only faith can sustain. If you're motivated by fear, but you don't have an ob- you will put your faith in an object. And if it's not Jesus, it will not sustain you. It will die, run out, and you'll find another idol to protect you. Paul is not talking about general fear and scare tactics. He's talking about it in regards to salvation, to sin, to obedience, to holiness. He's telling us that we should not just pastors fear their own sin. But the people of God, beware of the sin that lies within them. See, we oftentimes think sin that is small is just that small sin. There's no small sin. Jesus, didn't die. Jesus died for sin. The smallest sin was enough to put Jesus on a cross and the wrath of God to be poured out. So there's no small sin in regards to the wrath of God or the wrath of God deserved for the, sin, the small sinner that he must pay. But if you remember, 
when Adam and Eve first, they ate a, 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 they, they disobeyed God and they ate fruit. Chapter three. Chapter four, they had kids. And, and their kids inherited their same sin nature just like you and I. We are, we are sinners by nature, meaning we inherited it. And we're sinners by choice, meaning we continually sin. Not, that's not our identity as Christians, but like we're capable of, of egregious sin. They went from disobeying God, eating a piece of fruit, to one brother killing another brother, brother. Sin, Paul talks about it in the New Testament as well as being like a little bit of yeast that will leaven an entire loaf of bread. A little bit, if you've ever, you know, handled oil. I would sometimes put oil on my beard. Gets all over my shirt and everything. A little bit of oil goes a long way. It can leaven a whole bread, give yeast, give rise to a whole lump of dough. So sin can affect. He tells the Corinthians, when it's not repented of, and, it's not, and if it's not uh, confessed and it's in the dark, can ruin an entire church. So Paul is talking to, the, the, to Timothy saying, a little bit of sin can ruin your whole ministry. A little bit of sin can ruin a whole life. We must be the type of people who confess sin regularly and repent of sin Often, if a pastor doesn't do that, rebuke him publicly so everyone else understands that we take sin seriously. That's what he's saying. Why? Because God takes it seriously. God takes sin so seriously that he, he sent his son to be crucified in our place for our sin. To take our punishment, to give us his life. You see that, right? You see how, how serious God takes sin? He punished his son so you wouldn't need to be punished what, the, 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 the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said something along the lines of this. If, if, if I knew that sin would kill my best friend, why would I continue to do so? He's looking at Jesus as his best friend. Why would he persist willfully in, 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 in sinning the same act that caused his best friend, Christ Jesus, to be brutally executed and murdered? He, he continues in verse 21. He says, keep these instructions without partiality. So Paul's talking about not just the entire level, letter that he's writing, but particularly what he has just said. He says it this way. In the presence of God, he's getting more serious, and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and do nothing from partiality. He's doing two things here. Number one, generally saying, don't take your job lightly. I'm saying this in the presence of God, our Savior Jesus Christ, and in the courtroom of the elect angels. I'm talking about the, in the heavenly courtroom. I'm telling you, this is a scene of like a courtroom, and he's saying, hey, take your job seriously, Timothy. Don't exercise the work that you've been called to lightly. Second thing he's doing is he is giving us this view of this heavenly courtroom. And so he does so on one hand so that we... We understand that Timothy understands, and we understand that Timothy does not work for man. He works for God. So on one hand, he's speaking to Timothy with authority, and he wants him to take his job seriously because he doesn't work for man. He works for God. You need to understand this. Wherever you live, work, and play, you don't work for someone. You work for God. We do all our work, not as if we're working for man, but for God. But especially Timothy, especially pastors. You should understand this. That's what he's saying. So on one hand, he, he should not work for man, but he's working for God and take it seriously. He's been instructed. 
Timothy's gotten some hard instructions from the apostle. He's told him he's been instructed on widows. He's also been instructed on how to how to lead uh, the elders. But he's also been talked. He's been told uh, and instructed on how to rebuke the heretics and false teachers. And he's saying, Timothy, you can't pick and choose which one of these you're going to do. You can't just like I'm a preacher. I'm going to just preach. Paul told the, us about the widows, i got to ignore that. Talk, talk, Paul wrote me about the elders, i got to ignore that. Or, hey, uh, the heretics, the nut jobs, the, those guys, just I don't want to deal with it. They frustrate me. They give me anxiety. I'm just not going to do that. You say, no, you can't pick and choose, Timothy, what you do. Additionally, he says, don't lead with favoritism here. Partiality is favoritism. He says, that's not how leaders lead. You don't choose to, 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 to serve the widows because you like the widows and you only preach because you like preaching but you only like preaching sermons that are, that are not going to offend anybody so just do those don't talk about sin don't talk about the wrath of God don't rebuke an elder publicly because you know that might get you a, 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 a podcast written about you like don't do that he's, not, he's saying it does not matter Timothy you don't work for man you work for God you work for God and, and this is God's word. You are to submit to it, to exercise your, your duties in and through it and do it. Additionally, he's saying judge everyone the same. He talks about, uh, in, in other parts of the scriptures, don't judge the rich and the poor or show partiality and show, give honor to the rich and, and, and dishonor to the poor. Treat every person the same. No matter their background, their socioeconomic status, their race, their gender, you treat them the same. This is why he talks about so, so strongly about rebuking the heretic, but he says also you rebuke the pastor who's not repentant either. No partiality, Timothy. Hope you see this throughout the letter. He's getting to the end, and hope you've seen those who have been with us this entire time that this is the heartbeat of what Paul has said this entire time. He says, additionally, don't, ju- yeah, like, don't judge everyone the same. So, but also don't judge before you have all the info. You can't, he says, no prejudging here. You can't judge without all the info. This is really important. This is like a verse for the United States of America and everyone who has social media. <laughs> don't judge someone before you get all the info. Did you know that the, the, the term innocent till proven guilty is not an American thing, but a Bible thing? That's a Bible thing. We live in a day where it's not that. You are not innocent until proven guilty. I'm not talking about the law. I'm talking about in the court of our peers on the media outlets and channels. You're guilty until proven innocent. Someone takes a video of something and there's no context. You're guilty until proven innocent. And God's people jump on the bandwagon and just get really excited about the social media craze. And like, oh my gosh, did you see that video? I can't believe this happened. And and when we should immediately... Posture ourselves not in a in a in a posture of uh, of uh, melancholy bitterness or 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 we are just going to deny the truth or reality, but as a people who go, wow, that did look awful. Man, we we should be the type of people who who understand that we got to figure out all the details and all the facts before we judge. Imagine this. Imagine if that was not the standard. But someone, but this is exactly what Paul says. Uh, if don't admit a charge against an elder, unless you have two or three witnesses. So someone comes in and says something, you go, well, he said it. Got to try him for that. 
No, they go, no, 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 hold on, let's get all the details. If you persist in this, let's get it all, let's figure out all the details. Don't judge him before his time. Get all the info, and then we will figure it out from there. But we live in a day when you're not innocent until proven guilty in the court of your peers. You're, you're guilty until proven innocent in the court of your peers. Because it doesn't matter what the court says. If the, if, the, if the mob on the internet says you're guilty, you're always guilty. Cancel culture perpetuates this. This is a demonic thing, not a Christian thing. This is how the Satan rules. He accuses the saints night and day. He accuses the people of God constantly. You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You're never innocent. You can't get freedom. Only Christ offers that. Are we saying that there shouldn't be, isn't there real guilty? There's real guilt and there's real judgment? Absolutely. And that's what Paul's saying. The second part of what he's saying is, on the other hand, is like, hey, Timothy, y'all are practicing for the future. Did you not know that the saints will judge the world? Did you know that? Christians will judge the world. Did you know that? Did you know that Christians will judge angels? I'm quoting 1, Timothy, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says this to the church because they didn't know. They're like, huh, we, we didn't know that one. He said, yeah, did you not know? The people of God will participate with Christ in the final judgment on his side. So in one hand, Paul is instructing Timothy to, to take his job seriously. On the other hand, he's instructing Timothy to, to, to lead and to judge in a way that will reflect Christ's likeness. Namely, because you'll be with him at the coming judgment. So God's people should think godly about all of life, particularly about justice and law. And so he's telling Timothy, you shouldn't prejudge someone. You shouldn't judge, you shouldn't use partiality. You shouldn't rebuke the heretic, but let the pastor continue in sin. If he's persisting in sin, you rebuke him publicly. You see this, 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 we are to judge, Paul will tell the Corinthians, to judge the leaven, judge inside the church. And his, and his reasoning, reasoning is because when we stand in the final judgment, we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's 1 Corinthians 6, if you want to go study that. The people of God will participate in the final judgment with the Lord Jesus Christ. So on one hand, Timothy, you're preparing for your future. We're not practicing for heaven as, as a way to earn our way in. But if you've become, if you know, love, and trust Jesus, you've been adopted and now you're part of the kingdom of God and you're to live by the kingdom principles on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because that's how you're going to spend your eternity. You should start living that way now. Under Christ's rule, under Christ's lordship. In doing so, you'll actually see the, the flourishing and benefit of not just your life, but the life of the city we live in. God rule, a people ruled under God's justice and God's reign, there's blessing. But a rebellion, there's cursing. We live in a cursed world right now. And so the way we think, the way we act, the way we love, the way we serve, the way we give, and yes, even judge, should be done so in a Christ-like manner. He moves next to appointing leaders. A lot of work 
a pastor has. So he's got to appoint leaders. Timothy's young. He says, verse 22, do not be hasty in laying hands or laying on hands. This meaning appointing or installing leaders, particularly probably talking about elders. Nor take part in, or nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. What he's talking about is enlisting. He's saying, uh, don't feel the pressure, Timothy, to enlist elders too quickly. Don't be too quick. See, the reality is, like for a young leader, especially a leader like Timothy, there's pressure to, to, to get other leaders involved. There's pressure because there's a desire to be legitimate. So people are saying, hey, Timothy, you're not legitimate yet. You're a young guy. You don't, you don't have enough elders on the team. You don't have enough wisdom. Then, and, you know, that guy Paul writing you letters, just who is that guy? Like, he's not here. Like, how, what authority do you have? Timothy probably experiences a lot of outside pressure from the people in his congregation to make decisions. It always happens when the young leader takes over, everyone else thinks that they can do that. I had a guy one time uh, bring me a list of 21 families that if we didn't meet the demands that he had, that they were leaving the church. Tell them we don't negotiate with terrorists. They left. He was, he was being serious. I was too. Half the people he wanted to enlist in certain positions and in charge of certain roles are no longer Christians. Refer to him this passage. We don't lay hands on people too hastily because you don't know if they're going to, you got to examine them. Well, truth came out later. They're not, they don't walk with Jesus. Imagine your community group, discipleship pastor was not a Christian. We'd have to be doing the whole rebuke the pastor publicly thing. We would have. What Paul is telling Timothy is don't, you can't cut corners, man. You can't cut corners like everyone does in life. You can't do that. Don't install unqualified leaders. If you do, he says, you partake in sin. If you do it knowingly, you're partaking in sin. If you do it hastily, you're partaking in sin, the sin of others. So therefore, Timothy must, in order to do this, he must have a confidence that doesn't come from himself and it doesn't come from the approval of man, but a confidence that comes from God, from God's word, to align his, his life with God's word. And so, Timothy is experiencing, imagine this, the pressure. He's experiencing increased needs, ministry needs and demands. The widows need help. The, the heretics are, are, are leading people astray. The false teachers are coming in and, and they've already been, some of them have already led people towards Satan, we've been told. There's great pressure coming from, from the uh, new converts. Who's gonna disciple them? How are we gonna do this? There's pressure. And there's pressure from Timothy to hurry the process. And Paul is urging Timothy to resist that. Here's the reality. New problems cannot be solved. Uh, or sorry, current problems can't be solved with new problems. They're just new problems. You may solve this problem that you think, Timothy, but then you put the wrong person in play because you were hastily. You, you did this. I've experienced this. This is, I've experienced this on many, we have people, many people, have, there's emails and, and, and just accusations. People have left the church because they didn't think that we were doing an eldership process well. And then the process ended up weeding, weeding some people out that shouldn't have been elders in the first place. And then it installed those who should. And then I had guys like the Apostle Paul, has Tim, Timothy has the Apostle Paul, guys outside helping me going, hey, here's what people are going to say. They're literally like the Apostle Paul saying, hey, they're going to say these things about you. They're going to say your, your ministry is not legitimate. And they're telling stories of how they laid hands too early and how it led to ruin and misery. But they're encouraging me, hey, Al, stay the course. 
Listen to God's word. It will always prove true. And we've had folks that we thought would be candidates move. You just don't know. And then COVID happened. Imagine the pressure there. But God has made it clear. God has made it clear through his word that it's the Holy Spirit who sets apart overseers. It's not favoritism. It's not just the guy who's godly and can preach good. It's not the guy who has the degrees. Who has the Holy Spirit set apart? Therefore, it is the job of the leaders to create processes that help discern that. Paul went, no, a lot of people don't know this. Paul spent 17 years, 17 years under the church's authority before he was sent out as an apostle. 17 years after God, Jesus knocked him off his horse and called him to himself. 17 years of a discernment process. I mean, Elish should be kind of long. He was killing Christians before that. Kind of want to make sure he was legitimate. And then it was the Holy Spirit in a prayer meeting that set apart Paul and Barnabas to go do ministry to the Gentiles. It's the same as how we operate today, according to God's word. He then makes this interesting. He breaks from the instruction to Timothy on the church, and he makes an instruction to Timothy as a father would his son. He says, he says this, verse 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Now, we don't know why Timothy wasn't drinking wine. Maybe he was Baptist. I don't know. Uh, we, just, we just don't know. But he just wasn't drinking wine. Some say he might have been taking a Nazarite vow, which uh, would, would require him to abstain. We don't really know. We just know that he wasn't drinking wine. Maybe he thought if he drank wine publicly, they would think that he's uh, making too much money and want to cut his salary. I really don't know. We really don't know. Uh, but he's not drinking wine. Uh, he's only drinking water for whatever reason. And Paul is instructing him like a father would his, his son and saying, Hey, Timothy, um, ministry is exhausting. We've already seen that. Sickness keeps happening to you. There's frequent ailments that are, that are happening. Uh, take care of yourself. You, that's, that's the point Paul is making, is take care of yourself. The issue is not the wine, it's the take care of yourself. Now, many have thought through, uh, through guys like Pliny the Elder and different other uh, uh, folks during this time would, would, uh, or, or maybe have argued for wine as, uh, for medicinal purposes. Uh, and likely, maybe Paul's telling him, or obviously telling him to use it for that, that, that cause. We don't know what stress or what has caused him to have frequent ailments. But if you remember all the things that Paul has gone through, he's not just saying take a nightcap and forget everything, just trust, trust the bottle and not Christ. That's not what he's saying. But it's likely Timothy is experiencing some sort of digestive issues, or maybe caused by stress. I remember there was a season that I went through uh, where it literally, uh, because of adrenaline, because of the stress and, and stuff that were going on, was going on in the life of the church, that every time I would wake up uh, and every time I would go to preach, I would, like, I would uh, you know, vomit stomach bile. I know that's gross, whatever, that's how it was. I'm driving the car and like hacking up. And, and it was because I was getting surges of adrenaline, even on, a, on an empty stomach, and the adrenal surge made it feel like you were about to, you know, be in a fight or flight situation. And there I started having stomach issues. I should have referred, turned to this verse and 
picked up a bottle of wine, but I didn't. The point is, is to take care of yourself. I started having to do different things to take care of my health. I remember there was a, you know, speaking of honor in our church, honoring and loving and serving me, one person came and brought me a, a, a blood pressure cuff and said, hey, take this home, check your blood pressure. It's under control now. Diet, exercise, Timothy, take care of yourself. Paul's point is, if you want to do ministry for the long haul, take care of yourself. So I, I'm blessed to be a part of a team that, that we can share the load and we can operate according to our giftings. And we can, the reason, in order to take care of myself, my Mondays will look different than probably most of yours. On Monday morning, I do certain things to help me recover because I preach at night. If I preach in the morning, my Sunday afternoons may look different. You gotta figure out these things. He's telling Timothy this. That's his point. Take care of yourself. Lastly, he ends with this principle. He's gonna apply it to the, the picking and choosing of elders, but it's a principle that can be applied to all of us. The principle is this. You will be found out. Period. The sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others will appear later. He says that there's sins, obviously this guy's disqualified. He's talking about the elders. It's easy, it's conspicuous, it's, it's out in the open, it's, it's, it's open. Then there's other guys that you may do all the work you can and then you find out later. They're sin. Timothy, you're not gonna be able to do anything about that. Do, do, do your best. But he says this, know this, that the sin, your sin will be found out. You will be found out. Additionally, he says your good work, the good works will be found out too. So good works are conspicuous. Even those cannot remain hidden. Like you're, submit yourself to an assessment process. Assess the elders. God will make it clear who's to be an elder, who's to not be. And even then, later, you might find out some guy's sin uh, appears. But you now know what to do. You rebuke them publicly if they persist. But if they repent, then praise God. You, you want a brother. See, he's laying out these principles so that Timothy can govern the church of God in, a, in wisdom and in, in not showing partiality in a way that we can instruct the pastors to, to the parishioners, every single person, instruct them in the ways of the Lord. This is what Jesus taught us, right? To teach one another to observe or obey or, or uh, uh, command what God has commanded. Teach them what he, I have commanded until I return. That's part of the Great Commission. Not to teach people, the, the, the Great Commission, not to just teach. It's teach obedience to Jesus until Jesus comes back. We have the promise that his spirit will be with us. He'll never leave us. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Additionally, he's, he's saying that this principle, you'll be found out not just in your good works, or not just in your good works you'll be found out, but also in your sin. Your sin will find you out. We're told this in various passages and scriptures, but in Numbers 32, it says this, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. So it's not just a principle to be applied to the elders, but to all, all those in this room today. Your sin will find you out. Therefore, if you're a Christian, you should daily seek the face of God. You should be asked, because sin keeps you from God. Sin, sin keeps you from intimacy with God. Sin keeps you from enjoying God. You want an awful life? Don't repent of sin. You want to feel the destruction in the present life at some point? Continue in sin. If you want to feel the presence and power of God that surpasses uh, uh, all understanding and all circumstances where there's peace that will govern and guide your life, repent of sin daily, frequently. 
often. Search your heart like the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. The, David, the man who is a man after God's own heart, sinful though he was, devoted to God, said, hey, search me, God. See if there's any grievous way. Where can I repent today? Imagine the, the church of Jesus being excited to find out where they can repent. I've been, I see my sin. Yes, I see it. Now I can turn from it. It was a blind spot. Now I see it. That's not how we operate. We tend to operate like Adam and Eve. When we're, we're aware of our sin because we don't believe the gospel, we're aware of our sin, so what do we do? We go hide. We keep secret sin. And just like Adam and Eve's sin couldn't be what was found out, so yours will too. There's a difference between being convicted and being caught. Confession and being found out. God desires his people to confess their sins so they may be healed. You shouldn't be ashamed to confess sin. If you know, love, and trust Jesus, and you're ashamed to confess sin, it says more about your view of the gospel than it does about the sin you're committing. It means that there's, there's no shame removal. There's no atonement. It's only between you and God and cannot possibly be lived out among the people of God. Well, I've, I've been hurt by people. Jesus was too. You were one of them. We hung him on the cross. They didn't change the way he approached us. Seeing that Jesus atoned for every one of your sins, your past, present, and future, should free you to confess them, as James says, so that we may be healed. As 1 John says, that there may be salvation, as, so that you can walk in the light as he is in the light and experience the power and presence of God on your life. Additionally, he says, that we should be, our good works should shine forth. That they should be visible. So not, not only should Christians confess sin regularly to God and in community and get around people to help walk with them to expose blind spots and to walk in holiness as Christ is, but we're to let our good works shine. Our, 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 the, the, we should overflow in good deeds to, our, to, to one another and to the watching world. Because we are so full of the love of Christ. Because we understand the link that Jesus went to save us. That there's so much more mercy and grace in Jesus than sin in us. That we can overflow in benevolent mercy and grace to the watching world. We don't get offended because we've, we've been forgiven. The biggest problems in the world are not the biggest problems in our own heart. Biggest problem in our own heart was that we, were, we had sin and it kept us from God, but that's been overcome. Therefore, we can enter into any space in human history with the power and a love that comes from God. But you will never move into those spheres if you are riddled with, with secret sin. The reason being is because you won't want to enter into the light because you are walking in darkness. Or you'll do so in a fake, phony way, which the watching world can see. This is like a right hand and a left hand or a right foot and a left foot on the pedal of a bike. We repent of our sin. We, we, we cultivate intimate relationship with the, the Lord Jesus and we kill our sin lest it kill us and we enjoy more of Jesus and it overflows in our relationships, in our home, at our work, where we, where we, where we live our life. It overflows and affects and it changes. And we have questions about how do we operate in a certain situation. We go back to the word of God. Paul has instructed Timothy in almost every area of pastoral ministry. He's instructed us as well. He's telling us, you, who you are, the true you will be found out. 
If it's not, if it, by the grace of God, you better hope you get caught on earth if you're going to get caught. Because there's opportunity for repentance. If you remain hidden in your sin till the Lord Jesus returns, the wrath of God will be upon you. So this is how it works. We're all sinners by nature and choice. Meaning we've dishonored God, we've lied, we've cheated, we've steal, we've broken his moral law. We've also sinned, uh, not just willfully, but we've, we've not done what we should have done. We've committed sins of, called omission. We've omitted things. And sin makes us want to hide because we feel guilt. We feel shame. Sin makes us want to run in darkness because Satan, that's where he's at, in the dark. He's in the dark. He will never be forgiven, so he doesn't want you to experience forgiveness. So we're hiding but Jesus, like, like, like God le- walked in the, in the garden, found Adam and Eve hidden, exposed their, sh- their shame and their sin and offered them grace. Jesus left heaven and came to earth to seek and save that which was lost. Even in your hiding, he's coming to break the doors down to rescue you. Do you see this? Spurgeon called him the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit that would just hound you. Chasing you, calling you, begging you, come back into the light. Come to Christ. Believe in him. He's already paid for your sin. He's paid your penalty. Receive his life. Receive his forgiveness. The Holy Spirit is pleading with you. Chasing you in the dark. And he's using the people of God to run after you as well. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, it's because the Holy Spirit is chasing you. He wants you to know Jesus. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to be forgiven. He wants you to be cleansed. He wants you to be new. He wants you. And he's constantly, frequently coming after you. Coming to the light. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus, give Jesus your sin. Give Jesus your failures. Give Jesus your, your frustrations. Give Jesus your life. Give Jesus your fears. Give Jesus everything. If you're not a Christian, that's how you respond today. And if you're a Christian and you're in secret sin, you bring that sin to light as well. First to God, naming it and confessing it to God. And then seeking spiritual men, if you're a guy, Spiritual women, if you're a lady, to, ladies, to walk alongside you, to help you, to help you build a, a, a life and pattern of way of living that, that keeps you open and honest, first to God and then in community, so you don't keep hiding your sin. We want you to have vibrant lives with Jesus. This isn't, we want to know your sin so that we can put it on a dartboard and see if we can hit it. Jesus already nailed your sin to the cross. We want to help you walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. If you're a Christian and you're in secret sin, your job is to respond by walking in the light. If you're a Christian and you are regularly confessing your sin to the Lord, you're in community, you're walking in the light, you're feeling the, the, you really are overflowing in love for Jesus and others, then let it overflow continually more into to all the spheres of your life so that people would see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. 
So that's how we're going to respond. We're going to take communion. But before we do, where are you? you are you not, were you, did you walk in here not a Christian and Jesus is calling you and saving you? Respond in faith and go take communion. As an act of obedience, saying, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe his blood cleanses me. I'm a new creature. I'm a new person today. I'm declaring that publicly. If you've been in secret sin, confess it to the Lord before you go to the table. And if you are just overflowing with, with faith and love and you just the gospel is so rich to you today, glory in that. Go to the table, eat and drink as a beloved son and daughter of God. And ask as you eat and drink that God would give you the power this week to, to shine his light in all the spheres that he's called you to. And so, as a church, all those who've gathered here today, we have to respond. You have to respond. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that we would be a people who hear your word and respond in obedience. For those in here today who have yet to put their faith in you, Jesus, we ask that they would respond to do that. Those in here today that have been walking in the dark, may they walk in the light. And those, of, those who've had regular patterns of confessing sin, walking in the light, may, may they see that they're not here just on earth to just, just simply enjoy you, but to help others enjoy you too. That this good news is to be spread throughout our entire city, our entire nation, the entire world. For we are your people and you are our God. We worship you, Lord Jesus. I pray this in your name, amen.